Hey, one more thing before you go. A musical affair, divorce, deception, love affairs, expensive secrets, long overdue forgiveness, the power of beautiful music, and $300,000. The inevitable past, black tie optional, the lost childhood, a garden wall in Providence, Ashon's rug, the mind of an author and the heart and compassion of a woman. Stay tuned. We're going to have a conversation with Carrie Knowles, whose creativity has no boundaries and her dreams no fences. I'm your host, Michael Hurst, and this is The Thing About the Free Range Writer. My guest in this episode is Carrie Knowles. She's the author of eight books, four novels, and four nonfiction. She also pens a regular column for Psychology Today called Shifting Forward, A Wanderer's Musings. Carrie was named the Piedmont Laureate for short fiction in 2014. Her short stories have won more than 25 awards, including the Village Advocate Fiction Contest, the Blumenthal Writers and Readers Series, the North Carolina Writers Network Fiction Syndication, and so many more. She's a brilliant writer, a brilliant author. She's been named a finalist in the Grimmer Train Competition six times and was also a finalist in the Doris Betts Fiction Contest and received an honorable mention in the National Literary Awards. Today, we're going to have a conversation about her journey into becoming an author, what she has shared both personally and professionally. Welcome to the show. Thank you. What fun. I am ecstatic about what we're going to talk about today. We have so much uh, to, to talk about. I hope we can squeeze it all in. Um, I always like to start in the beginning, so if we don't mind, uh, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in a small town called Wayne, Michigan, uh, which is kind of between Ann Arbor and uh, Detroit. And uh, that's where I grew up because my father was blind and worked for Leader Dogs for the Blind, which was in Rochester, Michigan, but he traveled all over the country. He flew all over the country and uh, raised money for Leader Dogs and talked about um, Leader Dogs and, and all of his, his life as a blind person, whatever. And we needed to be near an airport. And so Wayne, Michigan is near the uh, Detroit International Airport. And that's where I grew up. And I went to Wayne State University in downtown Detroit and now live in North Carolina and soon to live in D.C. So yeah. there we are. Do you have brothers and sisters? I do. I have uh, two brothers and a sister. So there's four of us all together. And um, yeah, it's it's fun. We have a good time. Now you went to university, you said. Uh, what did yeah. you go? Would you, did you go there to be a journalist or an author or a writer of some type? Or do you have another idea in mind when you grew up? Well, my father really wanted me to be a doctor. And sometimes, you know, you don't get what you want your kids to do. And so I started at Wayne State um, in physical therapy and um, didn't like it at all. Uh, it just wasn't who I was. And I wanted to be a writer. And my father didn't want me to be a writer. But, you know, I won on that one. And Wayne State just happened to have a really um, writing department. But in the meantime, um, I had to pay for my own college you know, and that was back in the 60s when that was a possibility. I mean, you could actually work and pay for college, which I don't think you can do that these days, but you could then. And um, one of the first jobs I got was with uh, WXYZ Radio in their um, communications department doing advertising. And at that time, they were part owners of the Detroit Lions. And so I did a lot of um promotional work, uh, writing promotional stuff for the Detroit Lions, for the radio station and a bunch of things like that. And then I went on to pay for my last two years of college by writing for a sports magazine, an outdoor sports magazine called Competitive Breed. And I would leave school on Friday evening and I would cover drag car, speedboat and motorcycle races all over the state of Michigan. And I would 
It was fun. It was um, at first they didn't want to hire. They said I went for an interview and they said, uh, you're a girl. And I said, correct. You got it. I said, but I can write. And they said, but you're a girl. And I said, I'll write two pieces for you. And if you they're free, you don't have to pay for them. But if you like them, you have to hire me. And that's how I got hired. And I would come home Sunday night and I would stay up all night and I would write all my copy, turn it in on Monday morning and I would go to school. And then next Friday, I would get up and go cover these races and then come home Sunday night. And that's how I spent. That's how I paid for school the last two years of school. That's brilliant. And you showed them. Yeah. So, you know, I think my first big award for writing was um, which my both all three of our kids covet. They all say it's mine. It's mine. I have a giant loving cup um, called the Carrie J. Knowles Challenge Cup. And the uh, magazine decided that they wanted to to sort of promote the magazine and maybe that they had a woman on staff, whatever. And so I was the first woman to cross the state of Michigan on a snowmobile. Oh, very cool. <laughs> very cool. Had I had a snowmobile I, before? No. Did that matter? No. <laughs> yeah, it's so, just get on and get on and yeah, just go. <laughs> yeah. So um, so I left college and thought, oh, um, writing is interesting. I like that. I know how to do that. And so I just sort of slid into a life of a freelance writer. And that's where I am still. Well, I can appreciate a writer. My father, I grew up in a newsroom. My father was a, a journalist and uh, I literally grew up in the newsroom. I spent so much time there as a child. And then when I wasn't there at, at you know, at his work, whether whatever newspaper he had been working for, um, I was in his office as he was pecking away on the typewriter and getting his stuff squared away. I used to go out with him to the uh, train wrecks and the car crashes and, you know, which probably got me into wanting to be a cop, by the way. Um, right. But, you know, I went to, to all these different things that he went to. My sister uh, got to go with him when he had to cover, you know, um, it really broke her heart. He had to cover the Beatles when they came to town. Um, mm. So she was like 15 years old and, you know, had to go, had to go with. Had to go. Had to go, had yeah. to go work with that. Yeah, exactly. Just had to. Um, but yeah, I, I, I respect that. That you know, that's an, an, it's a wonderful career to have. And, and like all good journalists and all good article writers, uh, you want to write a book. And when did you get your first book started? Um, my first book came about because um, our mother, I have, um, there are four siblings in our family and my uh, I have two brothers and a sister and our mother um, developed Alzheimer's and um, it was, you know, in the nineties and uh, she exhibited all possible, you know, manifestations of Alzheimer's. And um, we were as a family trying to deal with, what was going on. And my siblings called me and said, look, you're the writer. And there's nothing in print about the impact of Alzheimer's on the family. And we are dealing with the impact of Alzheimer's on the family. And we don't have a resource to go to. You have to create that resource. And so they were wonderful. And um, so the last childhood, the reason it's called the last childhood is because from onset to death on average is 17 years. A childhood. And so um, with their help and their approval, um, I wrote about the things we did right, the things we did wrong, and uh, interwove research about Alzheimer's with throughout that book. And um, that was the first book that I wrote. Yeah, that's, that's a profound title, a profound journey, actually. Um, you and I had spoken prior to us uh, recording that uh, I empathize with you because we took care of my wife's father who had Lewy body dementia. And reality, the um, I wish we would have had your 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 guidebook during that time period. Uh, I think it uh, is a brilliant opportunity for someone to um, well and have the guidebook with them to understand a little bit more of what's happening with somebody with Alzheimer's or dementia of any type, because it it uh, it we call it the long goodbye. 
Right. It is. Yeah. And yeah. The, the book is written sort of chronologically so you can see what we were dealing with. Uh, I've had so many people call me up and say, you were peeking in my window. You saw what we were doing. And I said, well, no, I'm not. You know, I wasn't a voyeur. But, it, you know, we we were very honest. My siblings and I were as honest as we could be about um, the mistakes we made and the things we did right. Um, and the things we did wrong and the things we maybe would have done it a completely different way if we had a second chance. Um, but it, you know, it goes chronologically. So you can see as the, as things progress, how your life changes in terms of your responsibility and the situation. And, um, it's also about, you know, people, we had a wonderful, wonderful funeral director, which, you know, that's, should be an oxymoron, but, um, and he was a young funeral director and this was his first Alzheimer's funeral, which was quite interesting. And he yeah. sat it down and he said, um, he said, uh, you know, you've said goodbye a hundred times. And he said, um, the funeral's going to be weird and people are going to be sad. And he said, um, but I, you should be allowed to take a deep breath and start again. And that's important. And I thought, wow, that's really amazing. That's the other thing that was, yeah, the other thing that was amazing is when we finally had to put my mother in an Alzheimer's wing um, because she actually tried to smother my sister's baby because oh. the baby was making noise. So at that point we realized that we couldn't, we couldn't manage it. We couldn't deal with it. Um, and when we, when we moved my mother to the Chelsea Methodist home to the Alzheimer's wing, the director of the Alzheimer's wing said, um, uh, you know, all of my, uh, all of us were in town at the same time. And she said, um, tonight at dinner, you should write your mother's obituary. Uh -huh. Now, before she dies and before she dies anymore. And while you are all together and can relax and talk about growing up together and what was good and the adventures you had and the who she was, not who she's going to become. And we did that. And that was such an amazing piece of advice because we had an opportunity for the four of us to talk about the fact that she was boss. She was everything, you know, mm -hmm. that she ran the world and she did. Um, and we could honor her in that way. And we wrote her obituary then. Of course, <clears throat> we revised a little as we went along, but we were able to capture the good of her life. And that was really important. That's an amazing opportunity. Um, not many people get that opportunity or don't have the opportunity to be able to do what you did. I think that uh, it's, a, it's a brilliant advice for people who are going through the same journey. Um, because I know that, you know, it's a, it's a precarious situation because when you get thrust into it in the first place, sometimes you don't know where to start, where to go and what's going to happen. And you don't know what the expectations are even though you're told at times um, about uh, uh, sunlighting or sunlighting, uh, sunlighting. Moon uh, uh, no, uh, ah. um, <laughs> <Darn> it. sundowning. <laughs> sundowning. sundowning, that's it, sundowning, sundowning, you know, and things like that. And the first time it happened to us, it, it was a full out argument at three o'clock in the morning because he was dressed and ready to walk out the door to take a walk because he couldn't believe why is it so dark out here at three o'clock in the afternoon? And trying to explain to him that it wasn't three o'clock, it was three o'clock in the morning. And then he said, well, you know, it, big argument, big, you know, and, and we approached it like we probably shouldn't have approached it, uh, but had to learn and evolve with that. Uh, so I, I, this book would actually give somebody the opportunity to kind of get a better understanding of what to expect and kind of what to go through. And, you know, the, the one more thing before you go, you have the opportunity to sit down just like you just did. And uh, what what a profound group of individuals that you did talk to that allowed you the 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 access to do that in in the uh, tenacity to say hey 
take the time now. Do it while you still can. Do it while you've got good memories in there instead of bad memories. Remember like they used to be and not like that they're going to be because that deterioration is is um, devastating at times. Right. And, you know, what wonderful, you know, we so rarely in our lives give other people permission to do things that might not be um, seen as kosher, you know, might not, might not be seen as well. You know, wait a minute, she's still alive. You shouldn't be writing her obituary or wait a minute, she just died. You shouldn't be celebrating. You shouldn't be taking that breath and starting fresh with your own life. You know, you should be grieving and mourning. And, you know, that's what you're supposed to do when somebody dies. And, um, you know, that's not the case maybe with Alzheimer's. And um, boy, we did need that breath. We badly needed that breath to to go on and to reclaim our lives. And that's a good thing. I, I think you probably go over, I'm, forgive me, I've not read the book, uh, but I will read the book and recommend it to others because we do keep a close association with the hospice that is here and um, uh, support them in a lot of different ways uh, as much as we can. And I think that, that it's something that they uh, wouldn't, would get benefit from, at least give benefit from as well. Um, but taking the time, taking the time with somebody before they pass, taking the time to, for themselves as caretakers too, and, and remember that they're also human beings and we're also as caretakers, we're human yeah. beings. We're husbands, we're wives, we're sons, we're daughters, we're parents, you know, we're grandparents. And that um, sometimes we forget those roles when we go into the caretaker mode and feel that all we have to do is take care of that. We have to take a little time for ourselves as well. Right, right. And the caregiver role does, um, you have to move yourself aside and then, but you have to also hold on to yourself a little bit, which that's such a balancing act. That's so hard. It is. And not so. Um, speaking of balancing acts, you, you do a range of, you've written so many books and you're such a creative individual um, that uh, I like to kind of explore some of those areas, if you don't mind. Sure. I think that uh, you, I saw in your bio that you created the Free Range Studio about 12 years ago. Um, was that to help other, other writers and other individuals in the creative perspective? <laughs> It was to give myself the space I needed to write and to work and to be creative. Um, I had always had my um, office at home up until that point. And then I realized that I, I needed I needed to um, I needed to have space to make my own life and also um, to not be crabby with my kids. You know, it was like so that they could see that, you know, here I was and I was mom and there I was and I was still mom, but I was working on something else. And uh, it, it was a small it's a small office building. And actually, I just sold it, which is a whole nother story why I did that. But um, it was home to a number of writers came and, um, you know, uh, had an opportunity to work outside of their homes and to work on books. And um, uh, one of the, one of my tenants was with me from the very beginning to the very end. Uh, in the end, I owned the building and had the free range studio for 16 years. And um, Peggy Payne was with me from the very beginning. And she's also a writer and uh, has a career similar to mine with uh, commercial work as well as writing books. And um it was it was good, able to give back to the community and to teach classes there and provide opportunities for writers to have a little retreat. It was good. It was a good time. Very cool. I really I uh, I as a writer uh, would appreciate that. Sometimes life gets in the way and we can't take the time to to write actually write. Um, I know that you've written and you've written eight books or nine books. Nine books. The the one that's coming out in May, uh, shifting forward. Here it is. Um, we'll uh, make number nine. That's number nine. And uh, that comes about from I write a column for Psychology Today, which is was one of the biggest gifts I've ever been given in my writing life. Um, several years ago, I had a PR firm I was working with and um, we were reissuing the Alzheimer's book. That's the purple cover one in which I had added new material. Um, important material for like after the funeral kind of comfort, right. you know, information. And um, 
they had sent out a broad press release to a number of magazines and places. And one of them was Psychology Today. And Psychology Today, you know, called them and said, who is this person? Um, and they had then gone and read some of my books and they said, we want to talk to her. And so we made the assumption, which I think is a really valid assumption, that what they want, and they said, we want her to write for us. And so my PR firm and I both thought, oh, well, they want me to write about Alzheimer's. So I prepared for this meeting with Psychology Today, and I had roughed out five different articles about Alzheimer's and caregiving and this and that and whatever. And we got into a conversation and I was all prepared and very professional and ready to roll. And um, they looked at me and they said, uh, no, we don't actually want you to write about Alzheimer's. And I went, oh, OK, so you changed your mind. That's fine. It was really fun talking with you. And they said, no, 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 no. Don't hang up. We we want to we want you to write for us. But we decided we wanted to have online. Uh, a column that was not written by a psychologist and that was just um, written by somebody who's writing we like. And I said, well, okay. And they said, I said, what do you want me to write about? And they paused for a moment and said, um, anything you want to write about. And I went, anything. So what, please define anything for me because what an, un you know, there I was, you know, kind of on this end of a long career and working with hundreds of editors and hundreds of newspapers and magazines all over the country and always had assignments and somebody saying, you can mm -hmm. write about anything you want to write about. And you're like, twisted my head around. And so I said, well, like, <laughs> right, yeah, give me an give outline, me, give me something. And they said, no, 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 just whatever, whatever. Um, and I said, okay. And they said, but there's two things you can't write about. And I said, okay, fine, what are they? And they said, well, Number one, you can't tell people to, to buy your books. And I said, well, that's okay, because I don't even tell my best friends to buy my books. You know, somebody wants to buy my books, they can do that. And I said, what's the second thing? And they said, politics. You cannot write about politics. And I said, oh, that's no problem, because my youngest son is involved in national politics. And so I would, I never, I stay away from that because of him, you know, out of respect for him, I do not write in that area. Um, he's a communications director in, you know, a political person. And I said, I would never do that. And so anyway, I'm two, two years or so into writing for psychology today. And I went up to New York to talk with my editor, uh, Libby Ma. And uh, she said, um, we've changed our mind. And I said, you're firing me. And she said, no, 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 no. We're not firing you. We love you. We love you. We love what you're doing. She said, but we've changed our mind and we've decided as long as you're careful, but not too careful, you could write about politics. And I said, really? And she said, as yeah. As long we as you're careful. Right. <laughs> and I said, how careful? <laughs> you know. So um, it's been really, and people always ask me, I'm sure your next question is going to be, where do you get your ideas? And my answer is, where do you not get your ideas? I mean, how could you not walk down the street and have six articles brewing in your head? I mean, it's just the world is, yeah. wow. And then very quickly after we set up the column, uh, shifting forward, COVID hit. And then it was, wow, it was, took my breath away as it took everybody's breath away. And so there's quite a few columns in this collection. This, this is the first 50 columns that I wrote for Psychology Today um, about COVID and about, um, you know, keeping a perspective, moving forward, um, what's the impact on our lives. Um, and, you know, I've written about tomatoes. I've written about um, gray hair. Uh, I had a wonderful, weird thing happen. I went to get, you know, like the the fancy driver's license now that you're supposed to get that's supposed to allow you to have identification for everything. Right. And uh, made the appointment, had all my paperwork, had all that. And <clears throat> I arrive at my appointment time and I get ushered to the front of the line. And there's this line that's going out the door. So like there are 50 people behind me and all, you know, looking daggers at me, like how come she went to the front? And I said, I had an appointment. I called. I had an appointment. Three months ago, I got this appointment. So I go and, you know, the the person says, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, she says, so now give me your old driver's license. And I did. And she said, is everything correct? 
And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, everything's correct on there. Everything's correct. And she paused. And now there are 50 people in line. And I'm getting very nervous because I, I could get mugged on the way out of here because I've been taking this woman's time, you know. So she says, OK, so is everything really uh, right on your driver's license? And I said, yeah, yeah, the everything, the address, everything. She said, well, let me take your picture. So she takes my picture and then she turns the her computer around and she says, now look at the picture. And she said, is your hair brown? <laughs> I was like, thank, I thanks said, for pointing that out. I really appreciate that. I said, I said, so you'd like me to change that to gray? And she said, yes. <laughs> That's, That's she funny. said, there we go. Now we have it. But isn't that lovely? Instead Le of saying, okay, lady, look, your hair's yeah. not brown anymore, you know? <laughs> Leave it to she the DMV. Like, right. I just love that. And so I wrote about having great, you know, discovering you have gray hair. That's funny. So, it is funny. And she was so gracious. God, I just loved her for that. Um, and then I asked my granddaughter, what color is my hair? And she said, uh, silver. Uh, and I said, okay, fine. That's that's okay. And then silver I asked works. my hairdresser. Yeah, silver works, you know, whatever. But isn't that great? So anyway, I, I write about anything and everything. And there's much to write about in the world. From that perspective, well, that, that within itself, especially COVID, I'm sure COVID was the perspective on life completely changed when COVID came through. So that oh, I'm sure brought so much to you. And what we, at least in my opinion, what we've learned is that um, what everybody thinks is normal, uh, they go to work, um, you know, go to work at eight o'clock or seven o'clock in the morning. My wife goes to work seven in the morning. She has to drive an hour and 15 minutes in traffic to get there. Um, she works all day long in a closed in little office and then drives an hour and 15 minutes to get home. And um, during, for about a year and a half, she worked from home and everything changed. And it was, yeah. we get up in the morning, we had a nice cup of coffee. I, I drink tea. She had a nice cup of tea. We sit on the back patio. We listen to the birds. We'd, you know, look at the, look at nature, watch the sunrise. It was relaxing. It wasn't fighting traffic for an hour and 15 minutes, getting to work angry, cramped up in a little tiny space with a bunch of other people getting angry. And then coming home, fighting with traffic all the way home. When she got off work, we walked up, got another cup of tea, went back on the back patio, sat and watched the sun go down. Yeah. To us, that was the new normal. And that's the way it should be, kind of a situation. Yeah. where and, and well, obviously, evident by the 4.2 million, I forgot what they called it. I should remember that. Um, where everybody left work and said, they called it the gra the the reemergent or the right sort you know of the great escape. Yeah, yeah. the four point two million people that left and said, "I don't want to play this game anymore," and I'd rather work from home and I'd rather do this and get a better home life work balance than before, where it was just pounding into your head. You know, I I, I have friends of mine that are European, and my brother in law, my ex brother in law, actually is from Rome. And then uh, we know people from Spain, people from France. And out there, it it's not, I mean, it's against the law in France to call an employee on the weekend. Yeah. You know, they, they, it's like yeah. they, they create the work balance for you, whereas here they did not. So COVID gave that opportunity, uh, well, along with the rest of the unfortunate part of losing life and, you know, looking at the dinner table and people have disappeared for for this particular reason and, and the masses that come with it, I can imagine... Um, that filled 50 columns easy. Yeah, it is. And don't you think I, the next column I'm working on, um, I've been thinking about, um, is just that um, life is refocusing in, in positive and negative ways, yeah. but it's definitely refocusing. And I think for me and for a lot of my <laughs> friends, um, I can see people who are saying, um, you know, who previous to COVID were like, I want to live my life independently of my kids and, you know, they can live their life and I can, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I think people are going, you know, maybe what matters is my family. Family. Maybe what yep. matters are my children and my grandchildren. And I haven't been able to see them. And maybe if I, you know, this is yeah. not our last little dabble of a pandemic. You know, we something else will come skirting along. There's no question about that. Um, 
And so, you know, um, I, I think I, I see numerous friends of mine making the shift to move where their children are and their grandchildren are so that they can spend more time because that's what's important. And, yeah, you know, close friends and family is what's important. That's why I'm moving to D.C., you know. We also own a little place in Ohio. But, um, you know, and those grandchildren, I mean, what, you know, they just fall out of the heavens. They're just so fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still it's waiting great. on grandchildren. So I, 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 but I understand that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to quote you on well, that. Tell me that again. Once you get grandchildren, we can talk about why yeah. it's so different and uh such a gift. Such a uh, gift I'm going to quote know. you on that to my kids and say, hey, th- listen to this words of wisdom right, right here. Because <laughs> they'll enjoy it too, you know? Yeah, um, I'll open up every phone call with that. Hey, real quick, listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, that's true. They're well, really fun. We know where you get your inspiration for uh, for your columns. Where do you get your inspiration for your novels? Ah, uh, that just... You know, that's such a funny, that's a funny question because a hard question to answer because, you know, a novel is something, you know, a column, I can write a column in a couple days or a week, you know, a, a polished, nice column. So, I mean, it's a commitment, but it's not a life commitment. But, um, you know, uh, a novel it is a big commitment and it's not something you whip off in a weekend or a week. And so you better have a topic and a bunch of characters that you really care about, that you want to move forward. And, um, you know, I I think we talked earlier before the tape was running, um, uh, one of uh, a recent book. Well, you have a musical affair up and I can tell you very briefly where that book came from. Um, Our oldest son is a classical musician in Europe and, um, he has his own group called the Echo Collective. But anyway, many several years ago, he called me and said he was working. Uh, he was playing in a, ch- a very nice chamber orchestra, and he said, "Mom, I've got this idea." He said, um, "Why don't we work together?" And I had this idea for a really cool. Uh, chamber music festival, international chamber music festival. Wouldn't you like to work with me on this? So I wound up, I'd never done anything like this before in my life. So I wound up for five years running an international music festival. And this, so a musical affair is about the truth behind the arts, about how hard it is to raise money for them and kind of what goes on behind the curtain. And um, it's racy and funny. It's, it's the funny book. You got to write one funny book. Yeah, what I you like know? about it is your phrase, na- the names have been changed in order to protect some men in the story who should have been ashamed. And sometimes oh, it's not about so- music that matters, but the <laughs> it's, money. It's the money. It is the money. I'll tell you a very quick story because we have so many things to talk about. Um, so, you know, this also was a topic I didn't want to delve in because my son's involved in this world. Um, but one day <clears throat> I'm in my office. And I get a phone call from a very wealthy person in town <clears throat> whose name is on every arts program. You know, you go to any, the ballet, the opera, the symphony, blah, blah. Their name is there, you know, on that list of donors. <clears throat> and I get a call. And um, the person says, uh, so what are your levels? Now, let me just explain. I'd never done anything like this before. So I didn't know what they were talking about. My levels. I mean, thinking... What is my level before I jump off this roof? What is my level, whatever, you know? And they say, no, no, no. What are your, what are your giving levels? So I made it up. I'm on the phone, you know, and I'm, so I made it up. And I said, well, this is a this, and this is a that, and this is a that, you know? And, you know, there's those ranges like 500 to 1,000, mm-hmm. and then 1,000, you know, whatever. But there's always that 500 to 1,000 and then 1,000 to, so there's always a number that repeats itself, you know, as we move up. And so the person listened and said, well, what's your highest one? So I made that up and said, it's this. Three, and they said, okay, fine. Three days later in the mail, I get a check for $1 more that puts them into the highest level. Uh, $1. <laughs> and then I realized that, how much it was about the money. And that's interesting. That's what drove me to write the book. It's all about the money. It's not about the music. It, it's almost like um, my wife loves to watch uh, 
the game show where you have to, uh, you get up there and there's four of you across the way and you have to guess how much that that uh, item is, how much is that Chase Lounge and somebody says 200, somebody says 150, somebody says $1. I can't remember the name of the show. Let's make a deal. I think it's let's make a deal. I, I don't watch television, so I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's let's make a deal. But it's same thing here. And there's always somebody that, that bids. Somebody will say 300, and the next person will go 301. And yeah. it made them the highest right. one. And if you're, if you're uh, you know, around that area, you get it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, that's where, it, but, and so then, um, the inevitable past, which we had talked about, came about um, because uh, of um, a story that's haunted me my whole life. And I'll briefly tell you the story. And in 1902, um, a young woman was found badly beaten and unconscious on a train station platform in Macon, Georgia. And the police found her and uh, she was unconscious. She didn't regain consciousness. She was very pregnant. She had no luggage. She had no purse. She had no wedding ring. She had no identification. She had no train ticket in her pocket, nothing. And they took her to the Door of Hope, which was a home for unwed mothers in Macon, Georgia. And a doctor examined her and realized that she was probably not going to make it. She was badly injured. And but that she was probably for, far enough along in her pregnancy that they could save the baby. And they made the decision to do an emergency C-section and save the baby. And the woman died during the process and the baby was delivered by forceps and the baby's eyes were damaged um, and uh, <clears throat> the baby her father. And um, no one ever found out who the woman was. And so there the um, owner, the matron of the Door of Hope, Mrs. Knowles, realized that she had on her hands a child that they knew nothing about. And also a child that was blind, who had been blinded through the birth process. And um, that probably nobody was going to adopt this little boy. And so she raised him at the door of hope and gave him her last name, Knowles, which is my last name. And um, that my siblings and I have always felt this unknown grandmother's presence in our lives. And we've always wondered who she was, but not only who she was, but what of her is part of us. And wh why are we doing the things that we do? And so um, I got invited. I'm also a visual artist. I got invited to um, be part of an international uh, a guest uh, in Australia for a, a show of international artists. We were There were seven of us, and all of us were dual artists. We did two, two different kinds of artwork. Mine was, of course, writing and uh, visual art. And the theme of the show was the inevitable past. And when I started working on that theme, um, that story, I, I had to I had to talk about that story. And so I uh, wrote the first page of the book. And when I wrote the first page of the book, I realized that it was the grandmother was speaking. The my grandmother was speaking, and that she was speaking from the dead. That she was dead. And that led me to create um, a, a shroud uh, in which I embroidered each of the words um, from the first page of the book onto this 27-foot shroud because I found out that I had a 30-foot wall during this exhibition and didn't know how to fill it. So I filled it with a 27-foot shroud with the words of the book embroidered on it. I need to point out that I didn't know how to embroider and I had to teach myself how to do that. But anyway, so that's the inevitable past. And that goes to the theme of your show, which is, you know, uh, one more thing before you go. And so that could be taken as you not being able to say goodbye to your father, but also can be the person who died not 
being able to finish what they had to do on this earth. And I think that's what I always felt in my life, that there was something that the grandmother wanted, my grandmother wanted from me. Um, and so it, this is all fictionalized because that's all the information I had. Uh, my siblings helped me with uh, research and we found out a lot about Mrs. Knowles, who was the matron. Uh, you'll have to read the book to find out all about that. And uh, I went to Macon. I said to my husband at one point in writing the book, because I was writing without knowing where I was going. I didn't know what the story was, but I kept writing, thinking the story's going to come to me. I'm going to figure this out. I will figure this out. And I said to Jeff, my husband, I said, we need to, we're going to road trip. We need to go to Macon. So we go to Macon to try to find out some more information about um, Mrs. Knowles, maybe information about who my father's mother was, something, birth records, death records, anything. And um, we had a wonderful help you know, in making people we met said, oh, you need to talk to so-and-so, you need to talk to so-and-so, you need to do this. And we wound up talking to one of the historians in Macon and who happened to be very interested in the cemeteries there. And she helped us find Mrs. Knowles's grave marker. And she said, this is very unusual. She said, it's the, in the old cemetery. She said, but what's, she said, there's something very strange about this. She said, because it's the largest cemetery plot, the very largest cemetery plot. She said, but there's only one grave marker. And she said, but it's at the edge of the cemetery and you're going to have to take a taxi and then you're going to have to, you know, walk down, blah, 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 do this, do that to get there. And we did that and we got to this clearing and there was this very large cemetery plot with one tree. And under the tree was one grave marker. And as soon as we approached that plot, both my husband and I had the most unearthly feeling that we were standing on ground of dozens and dozens of unmarked graves of women and children who had died at the door of hope. And I realized that the granddaughter's job that what was unfinished in the grandmother's life was to honor these women, to say these women have lived and these women had lives and they were important and all lives are important. And so that is what the granddaughter gets in, you know, compelled to do by the grandmother is to honor those women. And it's an amazing opportunity you know, to remind everybody that we're all human beings and that we all belong and that we all, no matter where we come from or who we come from and whether or not we're abandoned, we all are part of humanity and society and that we shouldn't be forgotten. So that right. that's, that's amazing. It's an amazing story. So that's where novels come from. And then sometimes they come from overheard conversations and you wonder, what was that? You know, why did that happen? And I guess the question that writers are always asking themselves is, why did that happen? Why did that happen? Sort of like a cop. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we are like policemen, you know, we are trying to figure out why, the why. Exactly. Know? And uh, sometimes that. listening to a conversation in the, the other booth, you go, hey, wait a minute, I need to go talk to this person. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's just kind of the same thing. Almost, almost. Um, I know that you write a combination of novels and, and uh, right. nonfiction. Uh, do, you, do you have a primary genre that you like or prefer? Mm, I think the one that I enjoy the most <laughs> um, are short stories. And um, so there's a collection of short stories called Black Tie Optional. And people often ask, well, you know, how long does it take to write a short story? And I said, well, it depends upon the short story. I mean, some short stories take six months, you know. Um, and, wow. and the beauty of a short story is that all the pieces have to fit. You right. know, it's like you're writing something that has to move forward and have kind of a an elegance to it that, you know, it, it's, you know, short stories are different from novels. And, you know, a, a novel... Um, is a journey, you know, going like the inevitable past. It's a journey for both the grandmother and the granddaughter. Um, the book is written in two parts. And so the, you know, it, it's a journey going somewhere and lots mm -hmm. of things happen along that journey. 
And a short story is um, about a main character um, in, in which the main character is presented with things that are going on. And through it, they have a moment where they understand the world differently than they did before. It's an aha movement. And it's like, okay, you know, um, and they change. And that moment changes them. And I think I like short stories because that moment of change is so powerful in all of our lives. You know, um, you talked about finding your great, great, great grandfather and, you know, uh, you know, how will your life change in that moment when you find that person and find out more about your past? And I think that's just I, I like that about short stories because that is so powerful. Um, the, I have a, another book, which uh, is the small, my, my smallest book, my littlest book, the wee book, the wee uh, book. is called. Yeah, the wee book. It's called Ashwin's Rug. And it's 10 connected stories about 10 different people who own the same prayer rug and how it changed their lives. And um, that came about because I got very interested in how, you know, we all have special objects that that's that object you would take out of your house mm -hmm. if the house was burning down, you know, and that object, it's, it's just a thing, but it has power. And what is that power, you know? And so I became very fascinated. I actually wrote a 50 page essay about the power of art in order to understand what I wanted to write about this book. And then I got rid of the, I didn't send the essay anywhere. It was just rambling, you know, me trying to understand philosophically what is the work of art, you know? So anyway, this, this rug goes from person to person over the course of a hundred years. And at one point, um, you know, it has it has to move, you know, because there's 10 stories. It has to move. And uh, at one point it gets handed to a priest who has lost his his religion. He's lost his sense of spirituality. But this rug becomes very important to him because it, he just really believes that this rug is going to reconnect him spiritually. And. I also understand when he does that, that he has not given up this rug to the next person. And for six months, every day I'd go to my office and I'd you know, crank up my computer and I'd go back to the priest and I'd figure out what is the priest doing? Okay, what is he thinking? Where is he going? How do I move this? How is he, not how do I move it? How is he gonna move this rug to the next person? Six months, I go, I'm trying wow. to do this every day. He is not budging. I cannot. I try seven or eight different times to move this rug out of his hands. I can't do it. So one day I wake up and I say, you're dying. That's it. You're down. And so I kill off the priest. And then the housekeeper gets the rug. You know, so it's like I had to move that rug. I had more stories to write, you know. Oh, that's um, amazing. Almost like a yeah. almost like a writer's block, but uh, the ultimate yeah, end of the writer's block fault. was... Yeah. <laughs> well, so guy, you know, uh, he asked for it. What can I say? Well, I was going to ask you what a typical work day for an author is. And you, I think you kind of mm. just covered a little bit of that. When you write a book, yeah. what's a typical timeline for your book? How long does it take you to write the book? As long as it takes, you know. I had a wonderful privilege many, many years ago to meet Isaac Asimov and to spend an evening um, with Isaac Asimov. And at that point, I think he had 23, 24, 25 books in print. And he was an amazing, amazing, generous and That's funny man. Cool. Yeah. And he said, which has always stuck with me, any writer that tells you that they write more than four hours a day, he said, they're lying. You can't do it for more than four hours a day because it's so demanding. And people are always surprised when they start writing and I get them writing and they, I also have a writing workbook that helps you learn how to write um, that um, it's, it's hard. It's not only hard work, but it's exhausting. It's physically yeah. exhausting because it's so much mental exercise. In today's world, my I'm a writer, and you know, people used to say, "You own an office building." I mean, what do you, you have an office? You know, how often do you, how often do you go to your office? And I said, every day, Monday through Friday, nine to five. And then I wanted to semi-retire a couple of years ago. Uh, my husband retired, and 
he was kind of saying, you know, you ought to think about this. Um, that didn't go so well. Um, and so I started swimming in the morning and I wouldn't go to my office until 10 because that seemed that that seemed rational. I was Reasonable. like trying. Yeah, I was trying out my semi retirement. I would go to work at 10. And then I realized I couldn't I didn't. I came home at six. I couldn't, you know, five o'clock came too soon, you know. Um, so you just, extended, the you just readjusted your day. Exactly. I just shifted. I shifted my day. Um, so a lot of it is thinking. A lot of it is writing. Um, a big chunk of it now, uh, writers are expected to do a lot of promotional work. Um, a big chunk of it is doing wonderful things like this, talking to people like you, reaching out to an audience. Um, Zoom has been a real boon. Um, you know, uh, it, it's very fun to connect in this way with people and to connect all over the world with people like this. Um, so it's a it's a real job. It is a job. And um, research. There's a lot of research for me. Writing is a lot of research. Uh, if I use a street name or a building name, there is a real building with that name. There is a real street mm. with that name. The building is on that street. Um, I like for reality to come into fiction and it helps it for me to ring more true to, for people to be able to say, Oh, I've walked down that street. Yes. The sun was just like that. I agree. I agree. And I want to, I want to divulge uh, well, I might divulge a secret. Has your husband ever been a character in your, one of your books? Well, he used to worry about that when we first got married. And I said, Oh, don't worry about that, sweetheart, because, um, you know, you're not that tall, not that rich. <laughs> yeah, the names were changed to protect the innocent. Right, for people who should have been better. And people say, well, which character are you in your book? And I say, oh, no, 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 no. Mm -mm. I would ne never, because I would make myself taller, prettier, younger. I would certainly not make my hair. Actually, I do like my gray hair. I shouldn't say that. I do like my gray hair. Um, yeah, some thinner. people don't look good in gray hair. You you look nice. Yeah, yeah. and smarter. I'd make myself smarter and much wealthier, much, much wealthier. You know? There you go. So. I, yeah, I really, I, yes, I, I would do the same thing. They'd be going, isn't this a little like James Bond? Well, yeah, it, it's more like me. <laughs> right. It's, it's really right. Me. And the other thing is, uh, you know, it's so hard to tell the truth about yourself, but it, yeah, it's so important to tell the truth about your characters. And the other thing is, you know, people, when they start writing, they want to make these really wonderful characters. And I go, really? You know, I say, you'd have lunch with them? You know, that perfect blonde, that skinny little thing with the good car and the nice husband and the perfect kids and the beautiful. Are you kidding me? No way. You know, and if, if your character isn't flawed, you don't have a story. If well, Hannibal Lecter didn't eat people, yeah. we'd never know about him. You know? Exactly. Exactly. You have to have a protagonist. You have to have an antagonist. You have to have bumps That's in the road. Right. You have to have a goal. You have to you have to be able to have a, a goal. And the obstacles before you get to it, you have to have characters that are, forgive me, buttheads, and you have to have yeah. characters that are that are supporting you when you fall. Um, that's right. That's why we. And really those are the supporting characters, and so you have to have the the main character has to have um, good qualities, you know, uh, strengths that move them forward, and weaknesses that that create the story. It's the weaknesses that create the story. Absolutely. And it's the strength that, you know, that that make a self-actualization by the end of the book. And if you don't have a crime, there's nothing to solve. That's true. I agree with that. Uh, from a cop's perspective, as well as a, a, a reader's perspective, you know, you got to have something to, to kind of hope for at the end, what's going to happen and how can I conclude this? So, uh, right. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Do you, um, of all, I know that you want a lot of awards for your, uh, your stories and so forth. Do you have a favorite? A favorite award? No, fa favorite um, story. Favorite story. A favorite story. <laughs> yeah, what are your favorite oh, stories? Oh my gosh, what's my favorite story? There's so many. I've written so many stories. I think uh, that's a really hard question. But it's probably um, like trying to ask you, who's your favorite child? <laughs> Right, exactly. You know, uh, the kids will argue about that all the time. You know, she's your favorite. No, I'm your favorite. No, I'm your favorite. You know, um, no. I, and I think you, uh, I like them all. If I didn't like them, I wouldn't let them 
out the door into the world, you know. That's Um, that's one thing. People don't realize, you know, everybody says, oh, isn't it exciting that your book's on the shelf in a bookstore? And you go, ah, uh, actually, no. You know, I go into a book. I never pull my book off. The sh- you know, what What if I pulled a book off at random and looked at it and read a sentence and went, ah, that is the most awkward, horrible sentence. What were you thinking? Why did you write that? You know, no. Mm-mm. It's it's terrifying. It is absolutely gut wrenching, terrifying to have your book on a shelf and to know that other people are going to read it. So I really want my children to be well dressed when they leave here. I understand that. that. But that's a really that's a great analogy. Actually, I kind of like that. Um, <clears throat> let's talk a little bit about all of your books and how to get them. And I know you have a, the latest one. And when the latest one is coming out, let me speak in English. Right. The latest one is Shifting Forward, um, and it is a collection, cool. I have to figure out how to do this, uh, of the first 50 columns that I wrote for Psychology Today. I'm still writing for Psychology Today, um, and that will be out uh, May in May, and um, will be available. You know, you can order it through bookstores, whatever. Um, and if you go to my website, uh, cjanework.com. You'll see all my books and um, you can get them from my publisher um, and uh, it tells you how to get all of them and you can get them, you can request them at bookstores or get them if a bookstore happens to be, you know, handling it. Um, you can get them through my publisher. You, Of course, you can get them through online book services. By the way, there are a lot of independent bookstores who have an online presence now. And if you have a, a, a favorite, you know, a bookstore and, but you, you know, the, you, let's say you, traveled to Raleigh one time and you went to Quail Ridge Books and you thought it was a really cool bookstore um, and it's an independent bookstore, you can go online to almost any independent bookstore now and order a book through them. Uh, you know, So there's a lot of options online to get books and uh, I hope you do that. And the other thing, which is so people don't realize is um, you can request a book at your public library. The best gift you can give any writer is to go to your public library and say, could you get a couple of their books on your shelf? Because my friends and I would like to read that book and let libraries buy them. That's great. That would be such a gift. And write a review, you know, so that people know. Absolutely. And just to clarify, the C, Jane, is actually C as in Carrie, not S-E-E, C as in Carrie, C, Jane, work. .com. And I'll make sure that all that are all, let me try that again in English. I will make sure that all of that is in the show notes so that uh, people have easy access to uh, being able to find you and uh, get your books and so forth. And yes, please support local book stores. They, um, they're there for a reason and they're there because they love books and they're there to help you love books as well. So if you get the opportunity, um, what Carrie says, please look them up online and support them. Not saying you can't support the big boys, but you know, yeah, uh, the, yeah. The, the local bookstores and stuff like that are uh, a much more personal, comes from a personal perspective. Um, <clears throat> this is one more thing before you go. So, before we go, do you have any words of wisdom for any budding writers or authors out there? Be curious. Um, enjoy the world. And uh, I had a professor once who said the difference between a writer and everybody else is a writer could wake up on the dawn of the first day of the world with God standing beside them and watch the first sunrise come up and then be magically transported to the other end of the world with God and watch the first sunset come down. And a writer would turn to God and say, that was nice, but I would have done it differently. And I've always thought that that was so funny, but so true. I think writers want to rewrite the world, want to try to make it right, want to try to say, look at this, you know, be curious. If you want to be a writer, be curious and um, enjoy the world. 
Very profound words of wisdom, Gary. Thank you very much for taking the time yeah. to share your journey with us on uh, One More Thing Before You Go. I really appreciate you, what you do, and what you provide to everyone in the form of education, inspiration, motivation, and entertainment. So thank you. Well, this has been so much fun. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at BeforeYouGoPodcast.com. That's BeforeYouGoPodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go, have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.